Father, the Bible says that without you, we are nothing. And indeed, we are nothing if we don't ask for your help, if we don't ask for your guidance, and for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now, Lord, as we open the Bible, we ask that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible writers, that he may also assist us now and give us, Lord, enlightenment that we may understand what the message is for us today. There are many different needs here this morning, Lord, but I'm sure that your word has an answer for us all. And Father, I also ask that you may use me now, that you may anoint my lips, that I may speak not of my own, but I may be here, Lord, today just bringing your message for our hearts this morning. I ask you these blessings in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a special welcome to our visitors. I do see some people I had, been, I had seen for a while and I'm glad to see you here. So may the Lord have a special blessing for you today as well. I'd like to invite you to go back with me and read 2 Samuel 24 verses 18 through to 25. And we're going to read and, and try to understand the context of this uh, story. This is not the full story, the text we're reading, it's part of the story, but let's read it again. It's never too much to read God's Word, right? As we read more and more, it sinks in and we understand the message. Second Samuel 24, beginning in verse 18. And God, not God, God came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord in the threshing, on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt offering and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now the world today, people uh, are concerned with the economy, and uh, in fact we know that things will, will not really ever get better. They're going to get worse and worse. But people make investments, trying to realize how much they, they can afford not to lose. People don't make investments thinking of losing money. They want to preserve what they have and maybe gain some more. 
But the lesson we find here today in the Bible is one of sacrifice. Is one of giving up, of giving away what we have, of offering something that is precious to us. Not something that we, we can afford to give because we don't need it, but something that was needed. And we see David saying that he would never offer any sacrifice to God from something which cost him nothing. Now what's the context here of this story? And we see there is someone called Gad, a prophet from God. There is David, there is, there is Aruna, a Jebusite. And there are God's servant, uh, David's servants and he, the people with him. And there is a threshing floor. So it all started because David wanted to do, uh, to perform a census of the people of Israel. And one might think, what's so wrong with performing a census, having a census done? What's wrong about it? Well, David wanted to count God's people. And God was not pleased with that. And again, you may ask, well, what's wrong about that? Even today, there was a time when God commanded actually uh, Moses to have a census done. But not in this case. God didn't ask anything to David in that regard. Some people studying this passage have said, well, uh, probably the biggest error there was that counting God's people was wrong because it was not David's people, it was God's people. And I think there is some sense to that. That's, that's, not, uh, that's right. It was God's people. David was not supposed to be counting them as if they were his people. Now, others have also studied and come to the conclusion that Every time a census had to be performed, the men and the people were supposed to return an offering of half a shekel of silver. And in this case, David never collected that offer, that offering. That offering was for atonement. Well, David never did it. And that was wrong as well. It was also wrong that David commanded his army officer his army commanded he told his army to go out and do the census whereas God had instructed that the priests and the spiritual leaders should do it that was also wrong but I believe that the main reason why God was not pleased was because David was prompted by pride and ambition to perform that census Numbering the people at that point would show everyone how weak the people were at the beginning. How small the nation was. And under his rulership and his leadership now, they were millions of people. In fact, they counted the people and they came up to the number 1,300,000 men only. Not including women and the children. So that was fueled by pride and ambition on the part of David. And God didn't like that. God was not pleased with that. Because this would tend to foster the already too great self-confidence that the king and the people had. Oh, look at this. We are, we are strong now. How big we are. How powerful we are. And all the nations surrounding us will be fearful of us. God was not pleased with that. And God sent a, a, a prophet to talk to David. And the prophet Gad came up to David. 
And he said, listen, the Lord is not pleased with that. And I'll give you three options. The Lord sent me here with three options for you. You, you have the, the option of picking one of them. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm telling now, I'm saying now, not Gad said, but uh, each option was worse than the other, actually. None of them were good. And Gad said, well, you can choose, uh, you can choose a few years of famine. And you know, if, uh, if you are hungering, you have to resort to other nations. You will be at the mercy of other people who will, will be willing or not to sell you food. But that's option one. If David would not like option one, he would have another one, which would be he would be fleeing uh, into the wilderness and up to the mountains for three months, being persecuted by his enemies. That would be the second option. And that was not good either, because David at this point, if you see some Bibles have a, a heading there, they say the last years of David. These were the last years of life of David. He was an old man. He was not strong anymore. That would not be good either. And the third option was, for three days, there will be a plague, there will be pestilence among the people. And that's where David said those famous words that uh, went down uh, through history as famous. He said, I would much rather fall into the hand of God than into the hand of man. And he said, let the plague come then. Because I, I'm not willing to be, into, to be left into the hand of man. And so the plague came. The pestilence came and people were sick. People were dying of that disease. We don't, the Bible doesn't say exactly what it was. But it was something contagious. So much so that 70,000 men died all across the land. 70,000 men died. Now the Bible says that there was an angel of the Lord who came and who was kind of, he was dispensing this pestilence among the people. And he came all the way from Dan, up in the north, from the land of Dan. All the way down to Beersheba, near Jerusalem. And when he was ready to go up to Jerusalem and to reach out and to stretch out his, his hand toward Jerusalem, the Lord said, enough, stop there, stay your arm there. And David was able to see the angel right there at the limits of the city of Jerusalem on the threshing floor of this man of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David saw the angel there and at that point he realized that he had sinned against the Lord. David said in verse 17 of chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, he said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, O Lord, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So here is something we should always notice. David, as the leader of the people, he humbled himself before the Lord. He recognized he was part of the problem. He even recognized that he was the cause of the problem. Now is that something we are willing to do? Whenever you see a leader that goes out and, and points the errors in other people and is able to, to assess what the problem is, but the problem is always outside. The problem is never with them. That's a leader we should pray for. David recognized that he was part of the problem, he was the cause of the problem, and he humbled himself. And he said, Lord, I have sinned. 
Please spare the people, spare, spare the animals. They have not done anything. Are we able to recognize our errors? And come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and humble ourselves? Is that something we're willing to do? You know, I read someone, uh, something written the other day that if we are so good at pointing errors in other people, we should be as good in finding our own. We shouldn't have any, any hard time doing that. But we see the example of David here. You remember also the example of Daniel. Daniel had a vision. He was perplexed with the vision. He understood from reading scripture that the people of Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And then he has this vision that uh, where the angel talks about 490, uh, 70 weeks, sorry. And 490 years and he's confused about that. And the angel comes to explain everything. But before the angel comes, Daniel's, Daniel prays and he humbles himself. And he never said, oh Lord, you know, your people, they are sinners. They, they, they can't fix themselves, Lord, but please have mercy. No, Daniel said, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. He recognized he was also part of the problem. And that's something we should learn. We should learn to, to recognize our errors and mistakes and be willing to make a U-turn. I preached the other day here about conversion, about repentance, and how it means a U-turn. There are things in life we have to leave behind and to make a U-turn and come back to the Lord. While the Lord answered David's prayer, the Lord answered by means of the same prophet, by means of Gad. God comes back to David and he comes with the message of the Lord. And what God says is this, you need to offer a sacrifice. You need to offer sacrifice. Now, I need to say something here. That's how you recognize a true prophet, right? And I'm actually going to be uh, having a sermon uh, in a few weeks on the gift of prophecy. But here is one indication of how you can recognize a true prophet of God. It's someone who brings sometimes rebuke, reproof, but also and, and even judgment, but also encouragement. A true prophet above all else will bring hope, will point the people to the one who sent them. A true prophet will always point to the solution. A true prophet would not only pinpoint problems and difficulties and challenges but will lead people to the solution a true prophet like the case of Gad here he brings David to look he tells David to look to the one who can bring solution a true prophet points people to sacrifice to the sacrifice to the lamb of God so I tell you these days there are many voices out there and beware of self-proclaimed prophets who seek to draw attention to themselves. There are many good preachers out there, but beware of those who maybe are more interested in having a following than pointing people to the sacrificed, pointing people to the Lamb. Beware of self-proclaimed prophets who, who still set dates and make predictions about time. People who say that this year you should expect this or next year you should expect something else. Or that in, in such a period of time something will happen. You know we have clear 
clear word in the Bible that we are not to set dates. We are not supposed to set dates. Revelation 10.6 says that after the fulfillment, Revelation 10 verse 6, after the fulfillment of a series of prophecies, there will be no more time. Time will be no more. There will be no more delay. There will be no more interval of time upon which we should set our, our, our eyes. Because we are not supposed to set dates. We are not supposed to make predictions. Yes, we look around and we see that the day is coming. We look at the political scene around the world and we can tell that something major is going to happen. But we are not supposed to say that this year something is going to happen or next year or in a few period, a uh, few months period. In Matthew 24 verse 36, Jesus says, No man knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows it. And we have the clear testimony also of the inspired writings of Ellen White. Where she says, again and again I have been warned in regard to time setting. There will never again since 1844 be a message for the people of God that will be based on time. We are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. That's in the Review and Herald 22, March 22, 1892. So beware of anyone preaching time-setting messages. Beware of anyone trying to gather a following. You see John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest prophet among men. John the Baptist, Jesus himself said, Jesus himself compared John the Baptist to someone with the appearance of nothing more than a reed shaken by the by the wind. So God's true prophets don't need a following. In fact, they will they will raise opposition. But whatever you do, whatever you preach, whatever you share with anyone, please do it because of Jesus Christ. He is the center of our message. He is the one we should be setting our hopes on. So David is told to, to offer a sacrifice. And he now has decided that he is going to do that. That's what God said. And this time around he's going to do exactly what God told him to do. God specified the place of the sacrifice. God said uh, you have to offer a sacrifice and it has to be on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now who were the Jebusites? Do you have an idea? Do we know who the Jebusites were? The Jebusites were not part of the people of Israel. The Jebusites were Canaanites. There were people who were already inhabiting the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the region of Jerusalem. They were already there when Joshua crossed, crossed the river with the people of Israel. So the Jebusites were already there. They were Canaanites. But here is a Jebusite, Aruna, who was very much uh, appreciative of God's people and who was appreciative of the king. So he comes out when he sees David coming and he goes out to David. He sees it's the king. And he, he offers oxen, he offers uh, materials, he offers all the resources that the king could use for the sacrifice. Now the sacrifice had to be offered on the threshing floor. Do we know what a threshing floor is? We do, right? Yes, particularly those who live 
uh, out in the country or maybe those who are a little more experienced in life, a little more aged maybe. Uh, I think threshing floors have been uh, replaced by more modern techniques maybe, but uh, people still do that, people still use that. That's the place where the grain is separated from the chaff, right? That's where you separate the grain from the chaff. That's where you winnow uh, the, the harvest, the crop. So that was the place where God wanted the sacrifice to be performed. And so what's the big deal? God is asking for a sacrifice. Why can't I offer it here or there? Well, because God said so. God said it had to be there on the threshing floor. As much as God, just like God has said that His day of rest, the day we should set aside for God is the seventh day. What's the big deal if we worship God on the first day? Well, we should be worshiping God every day of the week. But the seventh day, the Sabbath, is different. It's a sign between God and His people. So if God said so, that's what we do. So God said it has to be there. It has to be on the threshing floor of Aruna. And that's going to be a sign that you are faithful. Because that's the place where the grain is separated from the chaff. That's the place where people will show loyalty to God. And it's the same thing with the Sabbath. That's something that God instituted as a sign between Him and His children. And those who are faithful are going to stand out. Now the Bible also says that the threshing floor of Aruna, it was such a meaningful place that eventually it became the same location. That's the same location where eventually Solomon built his temple. God's temple. And that's confirmed in 2 Chronicles, if you want to write it down, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1. So that's the exact location where Solomon built the temple. So Aruna comes and he offers everything to David. You can have everything. Everything is given to you for free. Aruna offered things which had value. He even offered the land, the place there where the threshing floor sat. But David refused to accept it and he said he wanted to buy it. The king said, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. How much are you willing to sacrifice? How much are you willing to lose? You know, there are things in life, and I recognize that. There are things in life that you can just not overcome by yourself. There are temptations that seem impossible not to fall into. There are things that you allow yourself to do when no one is watching. Even though God sees everything. And you know you should leave them behind, but they seem stronger than you. I know there are people who are sincere out there, people who are reaching out for Jesus. But I know also there are others who are not willing to know the Lord. Charles Brooks, a Seventh-day Adventist preacher who actually passed away not long ago, used to say that, We've got to realize that maybe even evil men will scoff. They will scoff at the whole idea of religion. They may thrust their fists into the face of God and call Him despicable names. Though they belittle His word and His cross, Jesus, God is going to have the last word. 
The Bible says that someday soon the Lord will stand up. And He's going to cry out, it is finished. Let the unjust be unjust still. God right now is reaching out. He's anxious to save. He's reaching out His hand. God says it doesn't matter how dirty you think you are. It doesn't matter how unworthy you think you are. You come to me and I'll save you. And I'll make you clean and I'll change you. It doesn't matter, but my spirit will still strive with you. However, not forever. My spirit shall not always strive with men. Someday Jesus is going to cry out, it is finished. And then at that point, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the plagues will fall down. And many people at that point will say, Lord, Lord, we repent now, but then it will be too late. God's people will already be sealed. There will be no more chances. The plagues that are falling, they will turn the waters into blood. And then they will have, uh, people will have terrible sores and burned with fierce heat. But then it will be too late. The time we have to make any decision is right now. Just like when the flood came and people were mocking Noah, they didn't believe the any rain would ever come. When the flood came, they realized that it was too late. And when the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were trying to uh, even uh, knock open, uh, kick open Lot's door, trying to abuse of his guests. Finally, fire and brimstone came from heaven, but then it was too late. And when the book of Revelation predicts that the plagues will fall just like the a plague fell there in the time of David, then at that point will be too late as well. Today is the day we have. Today is the opportunity we have. It is today that the Lord is pleading with you. It is today that the Lord is telling you to leave behind which is that which is keeping you away, away from Him. It is today that the Lord is calling you to a deeper relationship with Him. It is today that the Lord is calling you to find out how profound and beautiful His love is. It is today that the Lord is calling you to secure your salvation with Him. The Lord is asking you today to spend less thing in things, less time in things that don't build up your character. The Lord is asking you today, at this very day, at the seventh day of the week, at this place of worship, He's pleading you for a decision. He's pleading with you for a decision. It is today. And it will be different for me, for me as from what it is for you. But the Lord does expect a decision. There are things in life that you will need to leave behind. There are things in life that you need to abandon. To have a full relationship with him. Imagine with me. Imagine the king. A king who was absolutely powerful and mighty. And everyone feared that king. But he was, he was in love. He, he loved rather. He loved a, a humble maiden. But he was mighty and powerful. And anyone would ever dare to breathe a word that would go against him because he was powerful and he could just annihilate anyone. Just a word of his mouth and people would be killed, would be destroyed. He had all the power and all the strength to crush anyone who would ever oppose him. But yet, 
this mighty king was melted by love for this humble maiden. Now how could he declare his love for that humble maiden? You know, if he invited her to come to the palace and would put royal robes upon her and would treat her uh, with royal uh, care and crown her with, with a crown of gold, with pearls and jewels, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist the king. But the question is, would she love him? Would she truly love him? Would she live with him in fear and actually nursing that private grief, sentiment of grief for the life she had before and that now she's obligated not to have anymore? Would she be happy at the king's side ever? Would the king ever know? How could he know? Or if the king decided to ride on his chariot and go all the way to, his, to her forest cottage. And then getting there with his armed detail and fill the woman with presents and tell her that he wanted to marry her, would, not overwhelm, would he not overwhelm her? Now he didn't want a, a cringing subject. He wanted a wife. He wanted a lover. He wanted someone who would be by his side. He wanted her to forget that she was a humble maiden, that he was the king, and that the love that they shared would cross, would bridge that great gulf that separated them. And the king would think and think and think about it. He couldn't really figure out a way to declare his love for the woman. Convinced then that he was kind of tied, tied up by his kingship, he decided that he could not he realized that he could not elevate the woman, but he would rather go down to her level. So he decided to descend, and he clothed himself as a beggar, and he approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him, shabby garments, and out of the love that he had for the woman, he came down to her level. Does that story ring a bell with one we know? What great love that someone would leave his royal throne and come down to condescend with us. But in the story of that king, he came down to the level of the woman. And it turns out that she fell in love with him. But then, once she fell in love with him, she had to make a choice too. Because the men who conquered her in those rotten clothing and conquered her with a winsome smile, that man claimed to be the king of the land. Would she believe him? Would she believe he was telling the truth? Would she follow him? He claimed he was the king and he wanted her to come to his palace. Would, he, would she leave her shabby cottage behind and move into his royal palace? So she had to make a choice. Would she trust him enough? Would she believe his words? 
You know, brothers and sisters, I wish I could find the right words to impress you this morning. To impress you and to show you how desperate God's grace is to save you. I may not be able to impress you with any more words. But Christ is trying to impress us that these things on earth that we love so much. And for which we may be willing to exchange eternal life. They're all temporal. They're all transitory. They will pass away. If only we could get our heads into those things which are eternal. We would see that all these material things will be destroyed. They will pass away. So I come back to my question today. How much are you willing to lose today? How much are you willing to sacrifice today? What is the Lord impressing you to leave on the altar today? What is the Lord impressing you? You know, cars, houses, expensive clothing, jewelry, all of that will pass. Many things that seem so dear to us, they will pass away as well. Sometimes even, even the, the work at the church. You know, we hold on to, a, to an office in the church. And we hold on so tight that we, we, we see that as, as the most important thing in our lives. The office. Well, Jesus is, but not the office. We are here to be His servants. Even those things will also pass away. And we hang on to those things as if they were the source of our salvation. Whatever it may be. Job said, naked I came to my, from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the, the Lord. I tell you, my friends, other than our character, everything else will burn. But maybe it's not any possession. Maybe it's not any material thing. Maybe it's our pride that we need to leave today at the altar. Maybe it is jealousy. Maybe it is our tongue that needs to be tamed. And either we let go of those things now, or they will burn as well. Everything's got to be destroyed by fire. Either today at God's altar, or one day when fire comes down from heaven. So I ask you again, what is the Lord impressing you today? What is the Lord impressing you to leave at the altar today? And this is not a rhetorical question. It's a real question. I want you to think about it. Because today the Lord is calling you. He's calling you to go above and beyond. He's calling you to a closer relationship with Him. He's calling you to a life of joy and peace with Him. Like you've never lived before. And I'm appealing to you that today you leave at the altar that which is in the way of your relationship with the Lord. And I mentioned here some material things, material possessions. I'm not asking anyone to come to the front and drop their car keys here. They think they can, they can get around with a cheaper car. Uh, that's between you and the Lord. But I'm asking you, really, to come to the front and to place... On God's altar, that which is preventing you from a fuller relationship with Him. 
whatever it is. You don't need to do it physically. But I want you to do that. I want to appeal to you that you do that. I'm really appealing for a decision today. You only know what the Lord is asking of you. You only know what the Holy Spirit is talking to you right now in your heart. But I'm appealing that you come to the front. And while we sing this hymn, number 284, I'm going to ask that as, this Holy, as the Holy Spirit prompts you, that you may come to the front. You may come to the front and by doing that you are depositing at God's altar that which is preventing you from a fuller relationship with Him. God is calling you to come to the front. He's promising to give you beauty for ashes. To give you oil of joy for your mourning. He's promising to give you garments of praise in place of a heavy spirit. Number 284, and as we sing, I invite you to come to the front and to leave behind that which is preventing you from a relationship with the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, whatever it is that your Holy Spirit will have impressed our hearts this morning, whatever it is that we need to leave behind, whatever we need it is that we need to offer as a sacrifice on your altar. I ask you, Lord, that you may honor the sincerity and the desire of every worshiper here this morning that came to the front. Father, may you grant them the blessing that they need, that we may enjoy a fuller relationship with you. And we, as we have just sung, may we, Lord, be willing now to go out and tell others what Jesus has done for us. And one day, as we receive a white robe, as we receive our crown of glory, we may look around and see our friend and see our neighbor, see our spouse, our child, our friends, our co-workers also receiving theirs. Father, that's our desire. We want to see Jesus come and we want to see as many of your children saved into your kingdom. Bless us all this morning, I ask you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.